Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Mora's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Mora Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim, here today with Lance being joined virtually. Lance, how are you today? I am doing so well, sitting here in my isolation, uh, feeling good about everything. How are you today? Oh, I am just fine, Lance. Can't complain. And this episode today, Lance, that we're bringing our lovely, lovely audience is a really interesting, thought-provoking discussion with two friends of the show, two doctors, Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg, and they do a podcast called Women in Crime. We also had them on Crawl Space, uh, I want to say in 2019, to talk about their other podcast called Direct Appeal. And so this is their spinoff. And Lance, in this episode, we speak about the missing person, Sarah Stern, and which is a fascinating case, and a woman killer named Sheila Davalu. Yeah, you guys might recognize uh, the guests here from, uh, like you said, Direct Appeal, where they focused on Melanie McGuire. Again, this is their spinoff one. And uh, yeah, uh, Sarah Stern is a, uh, is a baffling one because 
it deals with the abandoned vehicle um, that we often talk about with uh, Moore Murray. Her car was abandoned and how law enforcement handles that and just the process that goes into figuring out uh, when we determine this person's missing. And then, you know, you have to go into the investigation, her past and what she was even doing in that area. Fascinating conversation here. It is, and uh, her body was never found, too, and it actually went to trial. So that kind of harkens back to what we were talking about a few weeks ago with Michelle Kazuba with uh, no-body prosecution cases. Right, and that's pretty rare. You need a certain amount of evidence that uh, can go from circumstantial to, uh, you know, enough to convince a jury that something definitely happened to this individual. Okay, everybody, so I hope you enjoy the interview with doctors Amy and Megan and check out our Patreon page over at Crawlspace. It's patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. We've been pretty active with at least one episode a week. Five bucks a month gets you full access. And check out all of our new shows at crawlspace-media.com and anything that's coming up for live events. We'll try to keep you informed as things happen, as uh, you know things develop in this current age of isolation when we're going to be out there live in the public. So check out crawlspace-media.com. On this date, April 23rd, 1973, 16-year-old Timothy Gerard McKernan left his home in the 1600 block of Weaverly Drive in Petaluma, California at approximately 7 a.m. He left on his bike. His bike was then later found at the Petaluma Public Library, but Timothy never returned home. He was 5 foot 9 inches to about 5 foot 10 inches, 130 pounds, with brown hair, blue eyes, and a scar on his upper lip. Timothy was wearing a white pinstripe shirt and gray pants. He was a sophomore at St. Vincent's High School when he vanished. And anyone with information should contact the Petaluma Police Department at 707-778-4372. And for more information, check out charlieproject.org and search Timothy Gerard McKernan. Welcome back to Crawl Space, Doctors Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. How are you today? Great, thank you. Great, how are you guys? Oh. We're doing really well. This is a uh, this is a great uh, time to be interviewing the two of you because when you were last on the show, we had such a fun interview, and I don't even want to call it an interview. We had a fun conversation and uh, really had some yucks, and I feel like we could all use some yucks right now. So welcome back. I was thinking the same thing. I think we're also just excited to be like working and podcasting and just you know keeping ourselves busy doing stuff we like right now. We're very lucky that we can do this type of work during a quarantine. Yeah, absolutely. I know. Well, you got a nice uh, setup there. We realized after we did direct appeal that it was more beneficial to build a you know a small home studio and do it ourselves. So we definitely like the setup better. We also had a lot of issues with our studio. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. Well, it looks very nice. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for joining us again. We'd love to talk about your new podcast. Of course, uh, our listeners may may recall an episode with you both um about your podcast Direct Appeal and the uh the murder of Bill McGuire and of course the uh, the podcast dealt with Melanie McGuire and if she was wrongfully convicted or not. Um, is there anything you would like to tell us about that 
case or that podcast before we discuss your new show, Women in Crime? Well, since we aired all the the final episodes, I mean, we've definitely had some tips come in, some helpful, some not so much. But uh, Melanie also um, receives some representation now, and we are also working with 2020 to air a two-hour feature on the case. So we're hoping that that will really bring in some information. Do you mean representation like an agent? Oh, no. Sorry. Lawyers. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Pro bono. Someone offered to do her, you know, to help her out pro bono from the podcast. So. Oh, that wow. Was, because uh, they heard the podcast. Yeah. Oh, nice. And, a, yeah. and this is a this is a lawyer who contacted you, too, or contacted her and said that they... No, it's a firm, a small firm in Jersey, and they contacted Melanie directly. And I believe one of the lawyers had known the case and was, you know, kind of interested always and then listened to the podcast, and then they got in touch with her. So she has some good pro bono representation right now, which is good for her. Will that be able to help her case or her situation? Well, we'll see how what they do in terms of filings, you know, what their actual plan is. Right now, I wouldn't want to say too much because I don't want to jeopardize any of her appeals. Um, so it's possible. It's always nice, though. She's at a point where she's not getting any representation. So for two reputable lawyers to step in and say, here, we'll help you out and let's discuss the plan. That's better than a lot better than not having that. And she's been in jail for 13 years. Right. 13 years. 13 years. And has she ever had um, any uh, consistent representation during that time? No, she's had several attorneys throughout the process, which is usually the case when you go from next step to next step, from one appeal to next, you usually get a new attorney. Um, But even within her trial, I think she switched attorneys maybe four times. And then so through the course, she's probably had seven or eight attorneys. Gotcha. All right. So are are you uh, two going to be doing a follow up to uh, direct appeal as sort of a behind the scenes of what's happening on the 2020 special? We definitely will at some point. And we were actually slated the 2020 was slated to air. Well, this month or in April. But because of, you know, the coronavirus situation, they had to take people off of the story and put them on that. So, well, not I, only that, our interviews were, we only, we did one in-person interview. We had two follow-up interviews, but obviously nobody's doing interviews at the moment. So, but we'll definitely have some updates at some point and, you know, we'll want to open the tip line again and make that aware, everyone aware of that, especially when the 2020 episode comes out uh, in terms of providing any information that might be relevant to the case. Gotcha. Great. Well, yeah, keep us updated on that. That's uh, that's good news. Sure will. But let's pivot to your new podcast, The Bonafide pivot. Hit, Women and Crime. Tell us about your show. What is the inspiration? So the inspiration really came after Direct Appeal. So a lot of people were emailing us uh, suggesting that we look into different cases. Have you heard of this case? Have you heard of that case? Can you look into this? You should deep dive this. And I think after reviewing a lot of the requests and, you know, I, I teach women in crime, so I'm always interested in different female cases. Um, I think what happened was I just said to Amy, you know, we have a lot of interest in women in crime and individual stories. And you and I individually have worked on so many different cases what do you think about doing women in crime? 
and nobody had the name. We were shocked that that podcast was available. We're like, what? We might as well take that. That was the first thing you did was claim that name. I think right? so. Yeah. It, it particular too, because I realize um, our listeners were interested, just like our students are, in how gender affects females as victims, offenders, both. So like, yeah. what's the gendered experience? Mm-hmm. So we were like, yeah. I'm, and I, I remember thinking, Amy's right, like someone's must be doing women in crime. But yeah, not exactly. I mean, there are people doing, you know, um, but no one took the name. So the name was a good one. But That's also, funny. I think doing something episodic was, at least I think Megan would probably agree because she did most of the legwork for direct appeal. That took over two years. You know, when you do an episodic podcast, as you guys know, it's a lot more manageable and I can participate a lot more. And the burden is now not only on Megan, we switch off every time we record. So that's also nice to be able to pitch in more. Very cool. Um, Lance has been uh, nagging me about a podcast called Men and Crime. Every and, day. Uh, <laughs> I keep telling him that it's not a good name. But Every day. Well, my... The name's not going to sell, Lance. <laughs> no, the original name was uh, uh, Two Young Studs in Crime. <laughs> And then Tim was like, it's not 1998 anymore, Lance. You should probably <laughs> probably rethink the title. Uh, that is pretty remarkable, though, that women in crime wasn't taken. Do you think it was? it's just such a good name people thought, oh, it must be taken, and no one actually followed up? There's one, female criminals. And so, you know, someone's focusing on females specifically as criminals. But I just thought all things women in crime are interesting Maybe it's so, you know, maybe it's too general for some people. For us, it was perfect because it kind of encapsulates like everything we want to do. Yeah, because we don't, we're not pigeonholed into one type of case. No. There's a woman involved, whether she be the offender, the victim, the lawyer, it doesn't matter. And it's great because Amy and I have very uh, different, this is a weird thing to say, but very different taste in cases. So we went through our list, like we made our own list and compared them and we didn't have one name in common, Mm -hmm. which is a little bizarre. Yep. Wow. Oh, and how do you how do you two react when people call you the Tim and Lance of uh, true crime <laughs> podcasting? Uh, I take it as women. the ultimate compliment. <laughs> it's an honor. It's, it's a true honor. Two young women in crime. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but it's not 1998 for us either. <laughs> no, some people have said that we're stuck in the 50s. So, <laughs> well, by that comparison, women in crime would be your crawl space. So I love it. I think so. Thank you. <laughs> so let's discuss one of the latest episodes that you've released. It's about a case, a victim by the name of Sarah Stern. It caught my eye immediately because of some similarities to Maura Murray in that there was a car found and Sarah was missing for a period of time. Correct. And also, they, you know, to this day, Sarah's body has never been discovered. So that's another, you know, similarity that, you know, it's still, although it's very clear what happened in Sarah's case, unfortunately, there hasn't been closure for her family in that regard. All right. Take us back a little bit to what her case is for those who aren't aware or familiar. Okay. So Sarah Stern was a young woman uh, living in New Jersey by the Jersey Shore, and she lived with her. Her mother had passed away, unfortunately, a few years prior. She was going to a local community college, kind of hanging out with her high school crew, people that didn't go away to college. She had a kind of a close-knit crew. Her father was away in Florida. Um, Somebody called in an abandoned car on a bridge, and quickly they were able to find out where it was registered. 
the police did a welfare check to the Stern household. And that's where, you know, I guess you could say that's where the story starts. Um, so they find this car. They know that's registered to Sarah's grandmother. But everyone knows that Sarah is the one who drives the car. Sarah's nowhere to be found. They go to her home and she is not there. And then, um, you know, they, they start the search looking for Sarah. And how old is Sarah? Sarah was 19 years old. And they never found her. No, this this is December 2016. So the police went to the Stern household. Uh, they talked to some of the neighbors. And there's this narrative emerging that, well, maybe Sarah took her own life. Or maybe Sarah went to Canada. Although that doesn't make sense because her car was found. And so where how it gotten to Canada, also her beloved dog was found in the home, along with her passport and money. So quickly they're thinking, all right, the Canada story doesn't really hold water that earlier that day she had dropped off some belongings at a neighbor's home and unfortunately we know that people that are contemplating suicide will often give away belongings so that fed into the narrative Um, people were saying she seemed a little depressed maybe she actually jumped off the bridge right so that's where this narrative starts however they quickly kind of switch gears they find out that she had spent the day Um, That day that she went missing, that she had spent the day with one of her good friend, Liam. And they were able to go talk to him. And he said, yeah, we spent the day together. We uh, we went to Taco Bell. We drove around. You know, they checked out his story was totally corroborated by surveillance cameras, receipts. He was all good. He went to work that night at you know 5 p.m. Everything's great. However, they start looking. They start looking at him a little bit because he seems like he might be hiding something. I'm skipping a little bit because there's a lot to this case. If you listen to the episode, you'll hear it's like 40 minutes long. And even that was, you know, cut down a bit. But Mm -hmm. so they find out that Sarah had gone to her bank that day of her disappearance and she went to her safety deposit box. So naturally, the police want to see what's in that safety deposit box and they find twenty five thousand dollars in cash. Yes, I have to uh, ask what 19 year old has a safety deposit box. And why is there so much money in there? Okay, exactly. So that's what the police want to know, of course. So they're thinking, all right, so now we could see maybe motive starting to come out or maybe, you know, first of all, if she fled, wouldn't she have taken this money with her? But then they come to find out that Sarah's mother had passed away, as I mentioned, a few years prior, and she had left Sarah quite a bit of money. And Sarah had been telling people some accounts were that she had $50,000 cash, other accounts say $100,000 cash. So they find the safety deposit box, $25,000 cash. They're thinking, okay, where's the missing money? Did she take this money and flee? Or why didn't she take all this money? Why does she have this money? Could this have been a motive for someone to do something to her? And wasn't the money itself, I recall, like really old money? Yes, it was very old money. It actually would disintegrate. Um, when they touched it, it would like disintegrate. It was very old money. And you'll understand why that's actually an important part of the story. But anyway, so they come to find out that Liam was actually at the bank with Sarah, waiting in the car while Sarah got this money. So they're starting to see that Liam might be a little more involved than he had initially said, but they have nothing on him. So they don't really have much to go on until they get a tip. Right. Like usual. Let me just I just want to be able to tell you guys how long it took for this tip to emerge. Um, Yeah. yeah, I just want to ask a quick question about the money. Mm -hmm. 
So her mother dies in like three years before, correct? In 2013. And she's left an inheritance. So this money is part of an inheritance from her mother. Actually, her yeah, her father actually had no idea about the money. Apparently, the mother was a little weary of big banks and a little bit maybe she was a hoarder. So she they had the second property. So Sarah had found all this money in like an old shoebox in their second home. And we don't know if it was inheritance or, you know, what the purpose of all this money was. But we do know that Sarah did take the money and, you know, put it into a bank. Um, And so what happened was eventually, sorry, guys, you're going to have to edit some of this when I sound stupid because I can't get my (laughs) dates right. But um, basically what happens is somebody calls in a tip to a detective, um, one of the detective's friends said, my son has something he wants to talk about. Turns out Liam has a good friend who uh, was a horror film director. And this? this is Anthony. Anthony, You're so good. Yes. Anthony. Yeah. So Anthony was living in Brooklyn. He had gone to high school with Sarah and Liam and this other friend, Preston, who will come into play in a moment. And he said that Liam had called him. And asked him if the police had contacted him to talk about Sarah's disappearance. So that's kind of weird. Like, why would you call someone and ask them if the police have contacted them? So he starts to think this is a little weird. And he remembers that Liam had said to him, "Um, I have an idea for a movie. It's about, you know, strangling Sarah and throwing her off of a bridge. Uh... And then, of course, when... Sarah becomes when Sarah's missing, Anthony starts thinking like, okay, things are looking kind of weird now. Liam's calling me, asking me if the police contacted me. And he mentioned this idea for a movie that is eerily similar to something that is going on right now. So they set up a sting operation. They um, have Anthony and Liam meet up. And Anthony, the second um, Liam and well, Liam, they meet together. Liam gets in Anthony's car. The first thing he does is check Anthony for a wire. Luckily, um, the police were smart and they did not wire him. They wired the car. So Liam obviously is ready to say something, right? They have police on standby, you know, watching this all unfold. And you can look this up online. It's incredible. Liam gives a full confession to Anthony with the police sitting nearby in cars and says, Basically, what happened, he spent the day with his good friend, Sarah. They were good friends growing up by all accounts. Um, He knew about the money that she had. He wanted that money. He pretty much choked her, strangled her to death. And um, unfortunately, according to him, when I say unfortunately, this is his words, he only got away with $10,000. He killed. That that wasn't the real impetus for his crime, though, right? Because the money was nice. But didn't he just want to kill someone? Well, he also he also had said that he always wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone. And he was a little bit disappointed. It didn't deliver. This is what he tells Anthony on camera with the police all listening and watching this. Okay, you know, there's nobody and the police are hearing this confession, but they still need to corroborate this story. So Liam goes on to talk about the old money and how he got the money, but the money was old and disintegrating. Remember the money in Sarah's safe deposit box, right? So they were able to kind of, you they, they start building a case by all these similarities. Because, of course, you don't know if he's just telling a story. But now it's starting to match up with other evidence they have. Um, what he ends up doing is after he killed Sarah, he went to work. He was a waiter at a local steakhouse. 
his buddy Preston, who was actually Sarah's prom date, another good friend, not romantically involved, but they were all good friends. Preston goes to Sarah's home, and the issue is Liam had left his cell phone. So his buddy Preston, Liam called him. I'm on my way to work. Just killed Sarah. But well, actually, he must have called him when he was there if he left his cell phone. But he pretty much said, can you go to the house and try to find my cell phone? He goes to Sarah's house. He moves the body. You know, he pretty much walks. Eventually, he ends up confessing to police and walking them through all of this. He also shows them where a safe is buried with the money that matches the money in Sarah's safe deposit box. When they arrested, they eventually do arrest Liam. And the key to the safe is found on Liam's keychain. So, you know, they have a lot of evidence now. Yeah, I mean, talk about just like the a blood trail like leading right to the criminal. That's that's incredible. And and didn't he say something about the amount of time that it took him to murder her, which is sort of suggestive of like uh yeah. having no remorse for this, having no empathy for this? Yeah, so he he said two really horrifying things in his taped confession, the unknown unknown to him taped confession. One was that he had he had set a timer because he wanted to see how long it would take her to die. And when the police got his phone, they were they they were able to retrieve that timer and they found out it did take her close to a half an hour to succumb to her injuries, which is just horrifying. And then he also goes on to kind of laugh about how her stupid dog just sat there and watched the whole thing, kind of alluding to the fact that the dog didn't do anything because she had this, you know, beloved dog that was home. What He's just ass- really asshole. so callous so you have to you have to look up these tapes they also um 2020 very ironically uh just aired her story this past friday yeah it includes a lot of the footage um from his confession i thought the method too was i mean we went you said choking but how did he actually kill her based on what he said well he first he he lifted her up by her neck with his hand and like held her up against the wall but then he also shoved a shirt down her throat and i guess held her nose watched her pretty much suffocate to death. Sarah's body still has not been found, but yet he's uh, gone through some legal proceedings. He's in prison currently, eh? Oh, for sure, yes. He was um, He was found guilty. Of course, they did go to trial, the case. Preston, J- not surprisingly, Preston took a plea. Of course. Um, and he testified against Liam. Um, so Preston got a nice plea deal. He pled guilty to robbery and conspiracy in exchange for his testimony against Liam. So he did it end up with 18 years for his role, which I think is um, maybe that's a little a, soft, considering that's that, a good deal for the oh, crime. It's a good deal. And for he'll him, get out but... in, you know, 15 or less. Well, I guess at least he confessed. Maybe they were being a little lenient there because there's still no body. So, I mean, uh, maybe his confession is the reason um, the trial went ahead at all, right? Well, keep in mind, they had a videotape because they had the sting operation. So they actually would have been fine without Preston. But Preston just corroborated a lot. And he actually walked the police like he took them. And all of this is on like the body cams of the officers. He took them to the Stern household and literally walked them through exactly what they did to the body and everything. Going back to the beginning of the story, Liam drove Sarah's car with Sarah's dead body in the front seat to the bridge and Preston followed him. And then Liam and Preston together threw her body over the bridge. So Preston was very much an accomplice in this. Um, Although they didn't find the body, though, that would typically make things difficult, you know, to try the case. But it was obviously there was so much evidence. Also, they had uh, powerful testimony from experts who testified that the water current, um, the night in question, Sarah's body. So it was thrown into the Shark River 
which goes you know right into the ocean and it would have taken less than 24 hours for her body to be seven miles offshore in other words they said this her body's not going to be recovered and we would not expect it to be based on where the body was thrown in oh that's that's really fascinating yeah that's yeah. that's interesting i just want to interject really quickly yeah um we were talking with our, our buddy, uh, Michelle Kazuba, who is a prosecutor, and we started mm-hmm. talking about no body cases and uh, reasonable yep. doubt and, and circumstantial evidence and everything that is a check mark for convicting someone without a body seems to be on Liam, which is uh, yes. everything from the motive and the means, the confession, right down to mm-hmm. the why the body isn't even discoverable. There's an expert saying it just went into the ocean in 24 hours. I mean, it, it's and a, I don't it's even think they needed that case. Oh, they, it was all, yeah, exactly. That was just like a bonus and icing on the cake for them. So not surprisingly, Liam got life without parole for the murder of Sarah Stern, along with several other charges. So he will not be seeing the light of day, thankfully. Well, and, that's good. and Preston got 18 years, you said? Correct. How and, old you know, is he's, Preston? He's young, so he'll be out. I mean, these boys were, you know, by the time of trial, maybe 21. So, you know, he'll he'll still have a whole life ahead of him. I find that disconcerting. Yeah. That part I find that disconcerting, me. too. I mean... To entertain someone's hypothetical conversation in the form of a, I got a good screenplay for you, I have a movie for you, and it's very close to their reality is one thing, and you can almost walk away from that and say, like, that was weird, you know, maybe I should not, you know, um, hang out with this person or something, Uh, Mm -hmm. but then to physically touch a dead body and help move a dead body, throw it into the water. He helped bury the safe. Yeah, exactly. Did Liam have some sort of uh, like hold over Preston? Was there some sort of relationship there that is deeper? Yeah, they. You know, of course, um, there was some speculation that Liam was, you know, the ringleader, and Preston, you know, displayed personality traits that would make him, you know, be the one to be more likely coerced into something like this. But I mean, it didn't seem like. There was no, it's not like it was duress or anything where Liam like put a gun to his head and said, do this or I'll kill you. It was very much voluntary. And of course, you know, Liam and Preston knew that there was money involved. Although Liam said he wanted the thrill of killing, Preston was promised money for helping out Liam. So for Preston, the motivation may have just been financial, which I guess is better than if the motivation is just for the thrill of it. But either way, I'm not sure I want him walking the streets in uh, less than 20 years. I'm sure Liam, because he's clearly psychopathic, you know, he has the real Mm -hmm. antisocial tendencies. Those type of personalities have a way of also being coercive, Mm -hmm. more manipulative, more charming about it, more convincing. So I'm sure that if Preston was, um, you know, somewhat coerced, it would make sense given Liam's personality type as well. Mm hmm. And Liam and and Sarah were childhood friends, too? Yes. So they were those friends that, you know, they grew up together. Um, they kind of ran in the same circle. Sarah, by all accounts, was a little more popular. Liam was a little more of a loner. Not surprising now that we you know, know what we know about him. But they were those friends that always, you know, ran in the same circle. Like I said, a lot of their friends went away to college. They went to community college. So they started, you know, hanging out a little more. Um, He even said that uh, on his Facebook page that Sarah was his sister, 
you know, when he he played that up a lot to the police and, you know, because the police um, interviewed him several times before they were able to start piecing this together. And you can see it online. It's a load. It's just a bunch of him talking about how they were best friends and it was like a sister. You know, he really played up that relationship. But Sarah's father, you know, knew him since he was a young boy. And what about Preston? The three of them were tight. So sort Sarah, of together. So Sarah um, and Liam were friends. Liam and Preston were friends. So Preston and Sarah were newer friends. Like I said, they had gone to the prom together the previous year. But it was more like Liam was like the the middleman between them. It's not the same, but it's making me think of the Skylar Niece case with the three right? together, yeah. the three tight friends and, you know, two of them kill. And the, yeah. the betrayal that Sarah must have felt when she realized that her pro- her two close friends are the ones that are murdering her. It's well, not a Preston, stringer. she never knew Preston was involved in it. Right. True. Right. Sorry. The betrayal but, I mean, of the one. Close yeah, but friend. still, it's her close friend. But yeah. Well, and, and who knows what the hell he was saying to her while he was murdering her. Yep. Who knows? He yeah. Horrific say. to even think of. Yep. Mm-hmm. I find it pretty interesting that uh, her body, they, they assumed, was all the way out to the ocean. Um, you said seven miles already. I guess uh, she was murdered basically near an ocean town. Oh, yeah. So this is in Belmar, New Jersey, which is, uh, you know, essentially the Jersey Shore. And yeah. it was uh, her body was thrown into the Shark River, which feeds directly into the ocean. But does not have sharks in it. Does not have sharks in it. Does not. No. Um, and there's still there's still quite a memorial on that bridge. It's very close to my house. Um, and, you know, they do, you know, on the anniversary, there's always a whole, you know, a whole memorial. And, you know, there's a there's a big visual. So it wasn't very long ago, but she lived in a very tight knit, small community and was her and her family were very well known in the community. Was there anything sexual between the three of them that you know of? Not at all. Um, I'm actually not sure what her sexual orientation was, but there was, um, by all accounts, Preston and Sarah went to prom as friends, strictly platonic, and there was never any, um, you know, romantic involvement between any of them. Which is odd because you usually think a crime like this will also have some type of sexual motivation. Exactly. Yep. She was not sexually assaulted or yeah, I mean, I, that's exactly where my head was going, was that there was some jealousy. There had to be some underlying jealousy yep. or or something, uh, some sexual rage there, mm-hmm. because it just feels so... Uh, Senseless. Hollow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like I, you just wanted to kill, kill somebody. And, yeah, even the money, it's almost like the money was the trigger because it gave a better excuse than I just want to kill somebody. You know, it was like... It was now at least you could attach like a financial aspect to it. Yeah, it's almost like if I'm going to kill someone, I might as well get this little extra on top of it. Why not? But right. clearly, I mean, I think Amy would probably agree. If he didn't kill Sarah, he would have killed someone else. Correct. Yep. Yes. She was just at the some point person. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I can totally see that. I can totally see someone using, you know, the the money as like, yeah, exactly. I get a little bit extra. I now have my excuse to kill and 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 it feels a little bit more justified if you attach uh you know if you expected to get $50,000 you attach a number to it it's it's just easily more I guess consumable or justifiable to someone as opposed to having to come to terms with like I'm just a shitty person that needs to kill somebody I think it was also a bit of a crime of opportunity as well because he yeah. knew that the father was away she was alone in the home 
He knew that, you know, this money was available. So I think it was almost a perfect storm. He had these feelings that like, I want to kill someone. Oh, my friend has money and her father's away. She's alone in this home. This might be like the perfect time. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. So your podcast is so great, and uh, you have been covering some really interesting cases. And I just wanted to talk about a, another one real quick. Uh, Sheila Davalo, I found to be a very interesting case. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? So Sheila Davalo. And so Sheila Davalo, I found this case to be so interesting, and I was surprised that it's not been covered more extensively to be honest. So Sheila Davalu was convicted of two crimes. The initial crime that she's convicted of was pretty controversial. She was, it was 2003. She's at her home one day and, and I think it was Pleasantville, New York with her husband. And the way she describes it is their marriage was kind of, eh, you know, simmering and, you know, she wanted to do something to kind of sauce things up a little bit. So she suggests playing a game, like a blindfold game, you know, um, and I'll touch you with an object and you guess what it is and you do the same. And I think, you know, he probably thought, OK, that's a great idea to start off. But um, the object that she decided to touch him with was a knife, which I'm sure he didn't expect. And she stabbed him in the chest with this knife. And so she stabs him and she actually winds up calling 911 at some point. He's crying out in pain, yelling at her. There's a lot of commotion. Um, she didn't, uh, I'm sorry, she said she called 911. She didn't really call 911. And what she told him was that, uh, I mean, it's, this is not humorous, but to me this part was, she said, I'm sorry, I called 911. They said they're too busy. <laughs> they have other things to do. So, uh, you know, eventually she actually puts him in the car, winds up driving him to the hospital, but they speed past the hospital and they're in another parking lot. And he claims that he's in the backseat of the car. Like, what are you doing? Get me to the ER, you know, and she stabs him again. And uh, they, their altercation comes outside of the car and a bunch of people see and they intercede and they sort of save him. And he makes it to the hospital and he survives. Um, so he survives this stabbing by his wife being stabbed, you know, a couple of different times. She speeds off, by the way, leaves him, just speeds off. Did he guess that it was a knife? <laughs> I'm going to have to say yes on that one. Uh, if not, the doctors definitely informed him. He made a full recovery. Okay. And so Sheila's charged with attempted murder of her husband. And so, I mean, I can go through the trial with you if you want. I mean, the whole story is bizarre, though, right? When did this happen? What year was this? So this happened in 2003, and the police called her in right away. I mean, they haul her into an interrogation, and Sheila talks to them, which, as you know, is you know n not really the smartest thing to do. Uh, but she talks to them willingly. She doesn't know what's happened, though. So she's explaining a story where she's saying, like, this game happened, but she snapped and stabbed him because she had PTSD. She grew up in like a war torn Iran and said that there was a lot of violence. She witnessed a lot of things and certain things are triggers for her. This triggered her. She snapped, she stabbed him, but then she clearly wasn't trying to kill him because look, if I was trying to kill him, why would I drive him to the hospital? So that's her explanation. How big was the knife? I mean, she started repeatedly stabbing him. And, no, and I don't survived. think she repeatedly stabbed him. I think she only stabbed him once at first. Um, and then she stabbed him again in the car. And it was some type of knife. 
So it wasn't like, you know, this 27 stab wound. It was a few stab wounds, which is not to say it wasn't uh-huh. enough, but enough so that he survived and enough that maybe once she stabbed him, she got scared. You know, maybe once he because he screamed out in pain, he said, and he cried out immediately. And, you know, the shock of it maybe shocked her as well. And uh, what happened? She also stabbed uh, her her boyfriend's um, lo- lover, Annalisa. Yeah, so here's what happens. Sheila, first she goes to trial for the attempted murder of her husband. And she winds up being convicted and getting a really staunch sentence, actually. She winds up being convicted and being sentenced to 25 years in prison, like a minimum, which is uh, kind of a lot for the her conviction. Um, and so they find out, or, or just so you know, also during this time, her husband defended her the whole time. He said he believed in her. He didn't think she really meant it. He was by her side. His family came to court and testified on her behalf as well. When she was convicted and they went to sentencing, all of the family rallied around Sheila. Like she was this, you know, great person and it was okay. Um, And so, okay. So what happened next? You think it's like the end of the story, but it wasn't. So come to find out. While Sheila was married to Paul, she was having an affair with Nelson Sessler. And this was someone she worked with at Purdue Pharma. And this is the oddest. I mean, I think these are the oddest parts of the story. Amy, do you remember this? Okay. (laughs) Amy knows where I'm going. She's having an affair with him, right? But she's not having an affair with him necessarily outside of the home. She tells her husband, Paul, uh, like once a month on the weekend that he needs to leave the house. He needs to vacate the residence because she has a mentally ill brother who needs to come stay with her and he would be very threatened by her having gotten married and he doesn't know about this and Paul is a threat. So once a month about, she convinces her husband to move out of the house. She takes down all the stuff in the house, all the paint, uh, all the pictures and everything else. And she has Nelson, her boyfriend over to the house. And so this is one of the methods in which she's carrying out her affair, which I think is pretty brilliant. I I know I was going to say clever, but I didn't want to sound callous. I don't know. I I mean, it's uh, who I mean, it's better than uh, saying you're going out to to a movie, you know, like every other night or something like that's a plan. That is commitment. I mean, it's commitment. It's audacity. I mean, who would ever? Yeah. I've never heard of anything like this before. Anyway, I have a so quick they, question. When did yeah. he find? When did he find out about this affair and the whole ruse? You mean Paul, her husband? Yeah. He didn't find out about it until after after he was stabbed later on. <laughs> Jeez. And and was it before or after he uh, supported her in court and his family supported her? No, I believe, I can't be certain, but I believe he knew when he was supporting her. What a guy. (laughs) Love, true love. I I don't know what else to say, you know. Wow. Um, So she's having this affair, and what happens is that there was, prior to the attempted murder on, on Sheila's husband, Paul Christos, about a year earlier, Nelson and Sheila had Nelson had pretty much well this is disputed Nelson may have broken things off with Sheila may have not but started seeing another co-worker and that was Anna Lisa Raimundo and things heat up pretty quickly with Nelson and Anna Lisa and I think they move in together and they become engaged and Sheila's not happy she really wanted to be with Nelson so she's not thrilled about the situation and 
so in 2002, um, Lisa was brutally attacked in her condo one night, uh, or one day, I should say, in the afternoon. And she was stabbed several times with uh, quite the scene and quite a bloody trail out the door. And, um, well, Sheila Davalu was convicted of Annalisa's murder. But it's very interesting because that crime was open. They had no idea, no suspects on that crime. They didn't know about Nelson and Sheila. So that crime remains open for a year until Sheila's convicted of the murder of Paul. And then these two police departments are like, huh, is there some kind of connection here? And then they start looking at it and working together. So one's in Connecticut and one's in New York. So the police departments actually worked together on Annalisa's crime. They took a real long time. So they took about four years and they received some criticism for it, but I didn't. I, I don't think the criticism really was valid because uh, Sheila was already in prison. They're like, "Look, we had 25 years to build a case. She was serving 25 years. We wanted to make it airtight." So in that time, they worked on bringing her to trial for Annalisa Raimundo's really brutal attack. What she claims she's innocent, though. Right. Oh Sheila. yes, Sheila f- fully admits that you know she tried to kill her husband because what else could she do in that case? You can't really you know discount it. But she claims that she is a hundred percent innocent of uh, the murder of Annalisa Raimundo. What do they have for any evidence that leads uh, to to her? Circumstantial. Well, they have no. They do. Um, they have a couple of things. One of the most damning things was they had her DNA in Annalisa Raimundo's um, bathroom. But she was there for some sort of get together. She was there for a get together. Sorry. I'm just looking back at my notes really quickly too. Um, She was there for a get together, but it was a year ahead of time. So it really wouldn't explain it. It was like her back bathroom. Um, so they, they, they do have the DNA link uh, to Sheila Davalu, and there's no real other reason except for a party a year ahead of time. So I don't think DNA would remain that long. And also on the day that Annalisa was murdered, Sheila left around lunch and took a very long lunch around the day of that murder. So, okay, we have her doing this long lunch. Also, somebody calls in. They have a female caller. And here was actually the kind of nail in her coffin. Somebody called 911 and said, my neighbor's being attacked. Um, and they described like a location they were calling from. And it was a female saying, my neighbor's being, being attacked by a man, you know, something to that extent. And so police respond. And that's how they actually found Annalisa so quickly. But then they have this caller on tape and they couldn't identify who this caller was. The address wasn't a legit address. So they have at least the voice recognition. And so when they go into court later on, Sheila Davalu decides that her lawyer in the first case did such a crap job that she's going to represent herself in this case. And so she is speaking to the jury the entire time. And so they convict her. And they said later on, the most damning piece of evidence against her was that we got to hear her voice for so long. And we know that that was her voice in the 911 tape comparing the two. Wow. Never works out. Never works out when they defend themselves. Are they're going to say it never works out when you call 911 when you're the assailant. But I That's what I thought he was going to say, too. <laughs> Don't that call 911 on yeah, yourself. Yeah, go that way, too. Well, so she did that twice. That's weird, huh? Oh, yeah. Calling no, she didn't call 911 the first time. She lied to her husband oh. and said that she called 911. Oh, she never actually called it. But she did drive him near the hospital. She oh. drove him to the hospital. But remember, yeah. she said she called 911 and they were too busy to come get yeah, him. Yeah, so, so that was a lie. Why. But she so drove was... him to the parking lot next to the hospital. 
she did drive him, which was nice. And she got close enough and then tried to kill him again. Uh, they asked her, too, like, why did, well, if you were driving him to the hospital, what's with the second stab? I don't know. I thought he was attacking me then, and I got paranoid. I thought he was mad, and he was trying to stab me. I was defending. Her essential claim to the second one was self-defense. Self-defense in, re- yes. like, his retaliation to her first stabbing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Stabbing number one, stabbing number two. Do you think that her uh, that she actually is uh, affected with PTSD? No. I mean, I don't know. To be honest, I don't know enough about her background to say she might have been. She was legitimately exposed to um, some really severe conditions in Iran. Even if she is, though, do I think that explains the crime? No. But then there was also, I'm not sure if you guys caught this, but this was really interesting. So there was a third crime that police wanted to see if Sheila Davalu was interested in because they're like, there was a third crime that had a link to her, and they were thinking, do we have a potential serial killer on our hands? So in 2017, they visited Sheila again to ask about the murder of a woman named Nancy Smith. And she was also a former co-worker of Sheila's. Um, the murder happened about a year prior to Annalisa's, and Nancy was also stabbed to death in her home. So you have the stabbing, you have a close time frame, you have a co-worker, female co-worker of Sheila. And so when they were investigating, too, on her calendar in her home, this victim, Nancy, had uh, a reference on one of her dates on her calendar. It said Nelson, Connecticut. So remember, Nelson was the guy, you know, the man. So the cops are like, boom, we've got this. This was another woman seeing Nelson. This woman is killing all of his romantic rivals. But as it turned out, they were actually, Nelson, Connecticut, referred to Nancy going to see the group, Nelson. Do you remember the two blonde-haired and brothers? And that's her crime right there. Yes. No, the Nelson brothers, yes. <laughs> do we remember? Oh, I remember. I was singing it on our pod. I'm like, do you remember the song that they sang? Because I kind of remember that. But um... that's, that's Tim and I's costume for Halloween this year. <laughs> oh, oh. You guys are going to look. I was just envisioning you in the long blonde Are you going to wear it to CrimeCon? Yeah, I like it. We're growing it out now. Definitely. So anyway, um, it turned out there was no connection, and they couldn't show any real connection between these two. So likely this is just one of those really weird coincidences. I, I just want to say I, the, the, the joke did not go unnoticed that you said that that was her crime. Oh, thank you. Nelson. Thank you. Yeah, that was <laughs> noted. How dare you, Lance. <laughs> what a crazy coincidence. Seriously, like Nelson wasn't around for that long. Yes, but they're timeless. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the story of Sheila. Um, if you've seen her, she did an interview uh, with Piers Morgan, and she is very interesting. She's highly intelligent, extremely defiant. Um, she claims that, just so you guys know, her defense is uh, to Annalisa's case is that, A, she didn't kill her. B, um, she always took long lunches like that for some reason because she ate at home. Mm, C, that was not her voice. And she could find, you know, some voice expert who would say that wasn't. And we know that's not an exact science, right? So you can get voice analysis that says, yes, that's just like her. No, that's not. So the jury thought it was. But finally, she said that or she points to contamination. She said that the. DNA sample that was taken from Annalisa's sink was the only one to ever leave the crime lab and be sent out for some reason, reasons unknown at this point. And so she says that it was a contaminated sample. That's her defense. 
didn't prevail. Oh, okay. She still got 50 years in prison. So yeah. Wow. So what do you, uh, what do you all think? You think she could be a serial killer or what do you think? I don't think she has anything to do with that third crime. No, she's not guilty of the third crime. I think she definitely tried to, in my opinion, at this point, without investigating further, I think she tried to kill. She killed Annalisa because she wanted to get rid of her because she wanted Nelson to herself. And what happened was after she killed Annalisa, Nelson started seeing her again because he didn't know that she was involved. And she went to him saying, I'm so sorry about Annalisa here. Let me comfort you. I'm oh here to God. help you. So they start seeing each other again. So Nelson has no idea until later on that he, you know, that he was being comforted in the arms of the woman who killed his fiance, which was really an awful turn of events. So I think that was her plan to kill Paul, then to be with Nelson completely. Has there ever been a, uh, a suspect in the third murder? Nancy's murder? Is that still unsolved? Yeah, that's still unsolved. And I actually don't know much about that. It'd be interesting, though. Maybe I should follow up with that one. Uh, I just know that they were able to exclude Sheila Davalu from from that crime, for sure. Gotcha. Wow. What a couple of really fascinating characters you just brought to the table here. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I'm hmm. fascinated. There's no shortage of people to cover. I'll tell you that. Especially with the all-encompassing name like women and crime. Well, a lot of the people wind up also becoming, so what we talked about was that the offenders, many of the offenders were victims. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, you know, separate categories there, you know, there's not victims slash a lot of them are victims and offenders are going to be one and the same, Mm -hmm. but we're also going to cover a couple of, uh, this is a little bit different too. We're going to couple, sorry, we're going to cover a couple of women whose work in the system in the criminal justice system has uh, furthered their system or for which they're very notable or notorious. So that's a little bit different as well. And I'm kind of excited about that. I'm kind of excited to get away from, you know, um, murder for a week. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can uh, relate. Yeah. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers, but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.